This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. So much to get to. We talked about President Biden signaling progress toward lifting a ban on travel from Europe. Uh, so we're hoping that, you know, borders, I know you're looking at me like, how do we do this? Well, at the same time, COVID's daily U.S. death toll, Carol, tops guns, cars, and flu combined. I know. Daily. That headline. Daily. Right. I understand for 2020, Daily. Right. This is what's happening now. Yeah. We're seeing the increase in cases. We talked about L.A. Let's just get right to it with Dr. Ian Lusbader. He joins us every Friday, gives us a COVID roundup, what we need to focus on. He's clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone. He is on the phone in New York City. Ian, good to have you here with us. How are you? Good, good. Always a pleasure, guys. Hopefully uh, providing some useful information. We you need, do. We need useful information because we're feeling a little stressed out again. Um, help us make some sense of these headlines. So just to review, uh, Delta is one of a number of variants of our uh, old acquaintance, uh, COVID-19. And really, uh, Delta uh, variant is a mutation or several mutations in the spike protein. So when that happens, uh, that spike protein is really where the COVID virus attaches to our cells, the ACE2 receptors. And uh, unfortunately, as that mutates, it can attach more aggressively and it can escape even uh, sometimes people who are vaccinated. Certainly, we're seeing a big rise in people who are unvaccinated, really primarily young people, and in a variety of states throughout the South and uh, part of the Midwest. Uh, it does not appear to be more deadly. In other words, it's not it's not killing more people other than numerically, meaning the more people that get COVID uh, with, of any strain, whether it's the initial alpha strain from the UK or any of the other strains, obviously, the more people that get infected statistically, if it's less than one percent that get hospitalized. The bigger the number, the bigger the denominator, you know, then the bigger the number of people who do get admitted and the people who die from it. Well, that's what we're already seeing. We just learned from the CDC that we're seeing seven-day average for hospital admissions nationwide rising 36% to 2790. Daily deaths, Dr. Lusbader, jumping 26% to 211 per day. How should we think about this if we've been vaccinated? Because here we are, having received vaccines, so many people tens of millions of Americans, and they're living in places where they're, they're going back to work, not wearing masks, riding public transit, maybe wearing masks on public transit. But they're back to life as, as usual, and it seems like this is a big setback. You know, there's no question that, that this is a setback. It's hard to say how big at this point. Certainly the vaccines at this point, you know, certainly the, the mRNA, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines do provide a lot of protection, certainly for severe disease, meaning... Um, most everyone who is vaccinated, even if they get a breakthrough infection, are not being hospitalized and not dying. It's a very, very small percent. Right. So the vaccines still now are, are very effective. We do think the antibody levels are high. The problem is that the Delta variant, that that uh, the mutations in the spike protein make it less sensitive to the antibodies that we form and also make it a little less sensitive to some of the other like monoclonal antibody therapies that 
that we are giving. So the uh, concentration of the virus uh, in the blood and the secretions, cough and nasal secretions, gets very high very early on. That's one of the one of the mutations the Delta has, so it's more contagious. Uh, people don't feel sick, uh, but by the time they feel sick, they already have a very high concentration. Uh, and so it's definitely a challenge, but for the people who've been vaccinated, very, very low risk of hospitalization. They may get breakthroughs. It's under 10% of people will get breakthroughs. So far, the antibodies do seem to keep it in check. You know, could it mutate further and be uh, more difficult, another variant? It mm-hmm. is possible, mm-hmm. but at this point, uh, the people who do need to worry are the people who are not vaccinated. And since we don't have great treatment, even the monoclonal antibodies that we're using, like bamlanivid, um, or other uh, alternative therapies, people talk about ivermectin, some of the other ones, the vaccinations make the most sense for the people who are vaccine hesitant because that, at this point, really provides the best protection uh, against the Delta variant and ultimately against hospitalization. Because you said the Delta variant not more deadly than other strains. Are you, You're saying for those who are vaccinated, but if you're not vaccinated, is it more? Is it deadlier? It is not more uh, deadly. In okay. other words, it doesn't seem to cause more of this uh, cytokine storm. But if you're infecting a lot more people, even if it's that smaller percent, you know, less than 1% get hospitalized, if you're infecting more people, that 1% gets to be a growing number of hospitalizations. You know, one of the stories we've been talking about here in New York City, the Yankees, you know, and, and you know, we're seeing just even... Sometimes it's cases of people who've gotten the vaccine and, you know, we're all of a sudden feeling like there's this potential for, once again, some super spreader events. Are you anticipating that we will see that again? You know, I I don't think so. There There is uh, – I don't think people who are vaccinated at this point need to wear masks uh, certainly not outdoors. If people are insecure or you're older or you have underlying infections uh, or, or immune compromise, sure, wear the mask. The Yankees and other people who do seem, despite vaccines, who they recover virus, they're very low symptoms. Uh, they may have a mild uh, cough or cold. They may have a breakthrough. Uh, could they potentially spread it? Could be, but we're not seeing this on a widespread basis at this point, and hopefully that won't occur. Do you think, just in the last 15 seconds here, Dr. Les Bader, do you think we're going to have to wear masks again here in New York City in the fall? I don't see that right now. Uh, I think it's possible deeper into the winter, but certainly not in the next few months, given our low level of infection in the tri-state area. Right. All right. Stick around. Uh, We're going to have more with Dr. Ian Lusbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone, right here on Bloomberg Business Week. Well, let's get right back to Dr. Ian Lusbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone's Medical Center. He joins us on the phone from New York City. So, Dr. Lusbader, I'm going to be very honest with you. Tim and I are talking. We're like, you know, Ian doesn't sound too worried. We we are feeling, you know, heightened anxiety. I'm stressed out. <laughs> there you go. Stressed out about some of these headlines and what, what increases in the Delta variant. Like we're talking about, should we get off of mass transportation now again? And, you know, I'm getting together for a family gathering and people are saying, can you kind of you know, not be in public places or inside restaurants. Are you really not that worried about what might be to come? I don't think it's good news 
that we're seeing a rise in cases. Uh, And we definitely are seeing a rise in cases. And and we know that these are primarily Delta, that Delta is going to be, at least for the foreseeable future, the dominant strain. We know that unvaccinated people um, are are very susceptible. And I think we need to do better to address uh, that subset, approximately half the population now that has not been vaccinated. It's a lot. Um, And I... it's a lot. And I, I you know, so the good news is uh, somewhere like 70 to 80 percent of uh, older people have received both vaccines. But a number of young people, which is really where we're seeing the predominant um, uh, increase in Delta cases, have not been vaccinated. And so we do have to address some vaccine hesitancy. And uh, just saying get vaccinated, I think, may not always be that effective. Unfortunately, some of the, um, you know, Internet news, you know, it's a very open information and often there's misinformation out there. Uh, It is true. Although mRNA vaccines have been used for many years for for this, it has been uh, a relatively short time, a year or two. There are some reported, you know, side effects, uh, myocardial inflammation and clots and so forth with with J&J. But those are very, very small and and they're magnified into uh, more uh, more of a problem, I think, than they are. I wish I could say that everything is risk free, but it's not. Even the influenza shots, you do see Guillain-Barre, which is the sort of ascending paralysis. We see it with other vaccines. But overall, we think that the vaccines are very safe, and we need to do a better job with vaccine hesitancy. We also need to do a better job with treatments and do studies so that the people who are not getting it, we can at least perhaps treat them. And there may be some things out there that we haven't fully addressed. So I think we have not done a great job in addressing vaccine hesitancy right. in therapeutics and um, all we can do is encourage people uh, in those areas. Hey, Dr. Lusbader, I saw this headline cross earlier this week, and I, and I said to Carol and, 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 and Paul and everybody on our call, I said, this is something I want to talk to with Dr. Lusbader mm-hmm. about when he joins us on Friday, overdose deaths, soaring to a record 93,000 last year, this in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, that was according to new data that we got from the U.S. government earlier this week. How much of that, in your opinion, has to do with the isolation that people felt last year, the despair people felt last year, and and what can we do to improve that? I think it's a a very high percent, and I think it's an important topic. So somewhere over 90,000 people in 2020 uh, died of drug overdoses. It's a 30% increase. There's no question that people respond to stress from COVID differently. Some people, a small percent, like working from home. They're happy not to go in the office. Unfortunately, for most people... Um, they're much more strained. People, uh, these overdose deaths are primarily in the uh, 35 to 44 year old age group. And I think what this shows us is that people need work, they need purpose, they need to socialize. But unfortunately, coupled with that stress and lack of work and lack of purpose is the availability of these synthetic opioids. These are come usually from overseas, often from China. They're more potent. We have our own opioid receptors, pain receptors in the body. Things like morphine uh, will attach to those. But these synthetic uh, opioids like fentanyl bind much more aggressively. They do provide a little euphoria, pain relief, but also respiratory suppression. So people... uh, take it and they think they like it, but in fact, they stop breathing. Uh, And there's a very narrow window of of the amount of dose that it takes to get some uh, either pain relief or a high sensation and cessation of breathing. 
And that's really why we're seeing this. We need to better seal the border so we're not getting mm-hmm. uh, synthetic opioids available. And we really need to address people in an outreach uh, to give them purpose in life, to get them back to work and get them socializing. That is an argument for getting people back to the office. No, it's a really strong argument. Yeah. And, you know, you do worry that this situation is being overlooked because of the pandemic and it's still a chronic situation here in the U.S. Uh, Ian, thank you so much. Dr. Ian Lusbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Lango Medical Center on the phone from New York City. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. You are, I've been kidding with you that you've been prepping, but you really have been prepping ahead of uh, Jeff Bezos going into space. Is, now, is he technically the edge of space too or no? No, he's technically going into space. Yeah, he's further going, out there, right? Further out there, yeah. Further out there than we saw Richard Branson do last week. It's 100 kilometers is what the international community considers going into space. It's called the Carmen line. What did Branson do? Uh, Branson went under that. Okay. So he was still, he still achieved weightlessness, but not because of gravity, but because the, of the vehicle that he was on falling through the sky. Okay. Right. That's how it works. controlled In a controlled manner, as we saw. <laughs> and, the, and the difference is too, that we know Bezos is a rocket, right? Yeah. It's, this is, this is an actual rocket. This is very different from what happened with Virgin Galactic. Well, this, there's a story in the terminal that's a must read. It's actually our Bloomberg big take today. It's also in the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week. Has to do with what we've been talking a lot about this past week. Billionaires, you know, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, Elon Musk going into space as Bloomberg's Ashley Vance writes, future of space bigger than the aforementioned billionaires. So let's get into it with uh, Business Week features writer Ashley Vance. He's also, by the way, author of Elon Musk, Tesla. SpaceX and the quest for a fantastic future. He is with us on the phone from Palo Alto. Ashley, great to have you here. Your story puts into perspective and really addresses the why do we care that these billionaires are going into space? How do you see it? Yeah, well, you know, I know that the, these space tourism rides are eye-catchy and sexy and, and all that, and there's a lot of People on the pro and con side, you know, the point I wanted to make is that this is just a small part of what is a just a massive uh, build out of the private space industry that's been taking place over the last few years and really accelerated over the past year. So what can we expect to see happen in the private space industry in the next decades if all goes according to plan on, on Tuesday, if this is a moment where Jeff Bezos is able to successfully go past the Carmen line in his 11 minute journey? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the space tourism sort of piece of all this. And then it's kind of these layers of building a true economy for the first time in low Earth orbit around the Earth. So we've got the space tourism, you've got SpaceX doing really well, sending satellites and, and people to space. A company in New Zealand called Rocket Lab has already sent up dozens of rockets carrying satellites. You know, if you look at the, the launch manifest, of all these rocket companies, we're due to send up about 100,000 satellites over the next decade, which would be about, uh, <laughs> you know, there's currently about 3,000 satellites around the Earth. Wow. And so you, it's just the point that I wanted to make is that this has been this dream for a long time, and, and, you know, it's still just a handful of governments, really, that have controlled space for the last six decades, and, and that's changing now. Well, I love this line in your story. What happens up above us will be one of the most important economic and technological stories of the next decade, whether or not Musk ever settles Mars. Uh, it's just like, in some ways, or is it different from the space race back in the 60s? I mean, which led to a lot of R&D, a lot of 
you know, innovation and just different thinkings about our world. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's definitely um, that sense of, you know, exploring and, and science that takes place. But I think what's what we're talking about in the story a lot is, is something that's just it's kind of more basic in some ways. It's mm-hmm. building a the next great computing infrastructure. I think of it as like a computing shell around the Earth full of communication satellites, imaging, science, all kinds of things. And, and you know, just like we had the Internet build out over the last 20, 30 years, um, you know, I think this is going to be where the, the sort of next part of the cloud goes is actually into the heavens. Well, talk to us about, you You talk about um, a senior at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. It's a great story, and I think it's a great example of what you are talking about more broadly here. Tell us who this person is. Decker Evleth, is, am I saying it correctly? Yeah, that's right. I mean, so this is an example of how far we've come, and people ha- don't always notice. You know, a couple of weeks ago, the story broke all throughout the news that, that uh, we uncovered about 120 missile silos in China that had not previously been disclosed. It seemed to be evidence that they're in the process of a very large nuclear weapons build-out. You know, in the past, this kind of thing would have been discovered by a military satellite. Um, in this case, it was an undergrad at <laughs> Reed College, Decker, who, who was on his laptop, and he was using just commercial satellite imagery from a company called Planet Labs, and it happens to be, you know, these, these silos are in a desert, and so even the military satellites would not usually be looking there, because um, it's not a, a point of interest. But in this case, Planet has so many imaging satellites that it photographs every spot on the Earth every day, and so they had, you know, hundreds to thousands of images over years of this spot. Ashley, you drew a, a parallel here just that shows how far we've come in such a short period of time, roughly 70 years. You write that when the U.S. went to space looking for Soviet weapons of mass destruction in the late 1950s, it had to use rockets to carry bulky satellites into orbit where they took photos and then they dropped their film canisters back to Earth to be rather incredibly (laughs) caught in midair by planes. Wow. I mean, this... This was the start of the satellite imagery, you know, business as it was. It was just in the government, but and that was at the end of 1959. We basically had to develop rocket technology, new optics, and, and all these these amazing ways to catch film canisters coming back to Earth all at once. And and it didn't work very often at the beginning. And they finally figured it out. But then you know you cut forward all this time, and any one of us now could open up. Um, this planet lab software and start poking around and, and go look for things. Well, and it's interesting because as you kicked off with, you know, the arguments are we know that there are people who go without food in this country, people who don't have great health care, who don't have Internet service, you know, things that have been laid bare by the pandemic is just a reminder of the inequities. And it's, you know, there are a lot of people, education, right? But nonetheless, your point is that there's, what's going on in terms of space more generally, I mean, there will be a payoff in the economy and innovation in years to come. Yeah, and I think it's just that sense of dreaming. I mean, I think the pandemic, you know, those are all very real problems, of Mm -hmm. course. And and I think a lot of us, you know, everyone's had a really difficult time over the last 18 months. And I think some of it is that feeling of kind of looking inward and, and, you know, there's kind of a malaise hanging over things that I think has, has dulled a little bit of this moment. I mean, I think, 20 years ago, when Musk and Brampton and Bezos set out to do this, everyone was like, that'll never happen, you're wasting your money, you know, whatever, go ahead. 
and now they've actually done it and people aren't right. excited and and you know it's an amazing accomplishment and i think if we're gonna if we're gonna tackle this stuff that's ahead of us i mean you have to be it's you know it's the kinds of not these billionaires but it's the kinds of people who work at these companies who are gonna figure some of these things out and and there are practical applications this infrastructure right built in space it's going to the forest and the environment yeah so much so much more um beyond the big billionaires battling over who's first (laughs) all right ashley thank you so much bloomberg's ashley vance uh is uh of course with us business week features writer author of elon musk tesla spacex and the quest for a fantastic future for those of you listening in new york dc and san francisco watching on youtube business week with tim and myself we're going to come back if you're listening on bloomberg 1061 in boston bay state business is next are you even pumped even more? i'm so pumped tuesday 8 30 a.m wall street time that's when our coverage starts this is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So she keeps tabs on the higher education space. Right now, she's finding that scarce flights and visa issues are snarling students' plans to reach the United States. Here with her story, Bloomberg News higher education finance reporter Janet Lawrence. She's with us on the phone in New York City. Uh, Janet, you've been really following the ups and downs, a lot of downs over the past 15, 16 months when it comes to higher education and the pandemic's impact on it. What's going on with international students? Well, international students would love to be getting ready to start um, their semesters in August or September, but they're having several problems. First of all, they're having trouble getting visas because of uh, backlogs at councils and embassies around the world. And then even if they wanted to come, there's the issue of flights. We know that um, the most students come to the U.S. from China, roughly a third of the million students that come in a typical year, and flights from China to the U.S. are down 96% from two years ago at this time. 96%. It's a lot. Wow. Okay, so so what are they, What are, you're talking to students, you're talking to colleges and universities. What are, what are they asking from, the students, asking from the colleges and universities right now? Well, at this point, you know, they're, they're still trying to sort everything out with their visas, showing all their documentation. Um, and typically, you may not want to get a flight until you have your visa and you know that you can come. However, some students are just taking a gamble, getting their flights as soon as they can. Some are being canceled. Uh, there are some charters. Um, parents and students have gotten together, and um, we know that there's two charter flights coming to New York in August uh, because there's just so much uncertainty there. And we know that international students have had a really hard time in the pandemic. At first, many of them were stuck here and couldn't get home. And now they're having trouble getting back if they were able to get home. And, of course, there's all the new students who will be starting in the fall, um, you know, coming by themselves. In some cases, if you're able to get a flight, it's not going to be direct. And you may have a few layovers then, you know, depending on where your college is after you know, hours and hours and hours of travel, you know, you have a long ride to, to a school. So it's, and we haven't even talked about vaccines, which is another issue. Well, and let's talk about vaccines, although I just want to mention in your story, there's just so much great information, but you talk about some of the flights. China is such an important market, Chinese students in particular, uh, for U.S. Uh, industries. You say flights from China may come with an eye-popping price tag. Uh, average cost of a round-trip ticket from that country to the U.S. was about $2,200 during the first two quarters of 2021. Uh, it's a big jump from the average of about 1200 seen in the same period in 2019. But some students, you know, you're talking about $4,000 potentially for a one-way ticket. And, and you've got students who are saying, uh, I'm booking several in hopes that just one comes through. 
yes. It's it's really quite uncertain yeah. for these students, and especially if you've never been to the U.S., which some of them, you know, are traveling for the first time, um, and you're having to go by yourself on these long journeys. Uh, but then again, we're hearing from Ohio State, which is starting August 24th, there's a concern about what if I don't get here in time, maybe I should just defer, and that has a whole other cascading effect on colleges. We know that last year there was a 16% decline in international students, and that's a lot of money for colleges because not only are they not getting the tuition revenue, but when they live in the dorms and they eat in the dining halls, uh, the schools are getting additional money that mm-hmm. really help them survive. So it's an- if you're, you're going to get these deferrals, which is entirely possible, that, you know, that brings up a, a whole other host of issues for colleges. It's an eye-popping figure, uh, $38.7 billion. That's a, that's what uh, the um, NAFSA, the Association of International Educators, says, as quoted in your story, um, international students studying at U.S. colleges and universities, how much they contribute. How have colleges adapted to this? Because it's not just the COVID pandemic. I mean, this started happening under the Trump administration when tensions with China increased and many Chinese students weren't able to come to the U.S., right? Yes. Well, there was a slow in the growth of Chinese students coming. And, it's, you know, they, they are the, by far the largest number of uh, the country most represented in the U- U.S. is China. It's about one-third of all U.S. Uh, foreign students coming to the U.S. So, you know, having online classes had not only impact on the bottom lines of colleges, but also on the, on the towns where they are. You know, students still have to eat. They, you know, they go to movies. They buy clothes. They buy groceries. So, um, you know, it's not just the colleges that took a hit. It was it's often the small towns. And now you're having the issue with vaccinations as well. Um, you know, you may see a lot of students having to get their vaccinations at colleges once they come here, once they're finally able to make it. So that's, that's a whole other issue. I do also wonder, Janet, especially as the headlines, Tim and I have been talking so much about cases rising here in the U.S., worries about the Delta variant and whether or not we start to see some kind of pullback. Um, we see it already in L.A. County, you know, with masks again, whether or not things start to slow down again and the impact it will ultimately have on these college and universities. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, it's, right? these colleges and universities have to be watching this very closely and asking themselves, okay, what are we going to do to return to in-person learning? As Jana points out in her piece, there's so much pressure on these colleges and universities to return to in-person learning because students who are paying the full freight want to see that experience that they're paying for. Right, exactly. It's hard to, when you're virtually at home, not experiencing How do you justify the, the cost? The, right? Getting the experience, it's like, wait, I'm, I'm watching TV, basically. Even if you're paying half of what it costs to go to a traditional college. Agreed. Janet Lauren, higher education finance reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone in New York City. Check her out at Janet Lauren on Twitter. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Tick-tock, everybody. Ten and a half minutes left until the end of the trading day. And then we're, Tim and I, we're done. No, we're not done. Uh, <laughs> or you'll be done. I'm done. Um, I'm going to be sitting in that FDR traffic Tom Rogers was just talking about. You can stay with about. me. You can stay with me. Let's get to it because it's been an interesting day. Uh, 
Tim and I have been talking, it does feel like some of those COVID headlines are weighing on investors' minds. Also, that really uh, decrease in consumer yeah. sentiment. Consumers increasingly uh, concerned about maybe inflation, but we are seeing stocks go to their lows as we speak of the day. So we're down about 331 points on the Dow. So that's down almost 1%. Let's get to it with Alan Lance. Alan Lance is director of research at LanceGlobal.com. Also president of Alan B. Lance and Associates. He joins us on the phone from Toledo, Ohio. Alan, it's great to have you back with us. We spoke not too Thank long you. ago. And I'm interested to hear your take on on today's trade because it's something that, that Carol and I have been talking about throughout the afternoon, the rise in cases here in the U.S., the spread of the Delta variant, cruise lines taking a hit. It really does seem like uh, investors are a little concerned about what we're seeing when it comes to the coronavirus. Yeah, I think you have that, Tim. And then you also have, you know, if you look at uh, just the, the amount of uh, IPOs of, of late and, and, and they, they even though they're priced at, at some of them the higher end, they're just not uh, really uh, 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 paying off for the investors and, and they can't hold their their initial uh, price. And, and, you know, I, I think when you look at that and, and, and the, you know, the supply of uh, uh, new stocks coming in, it, it's reminiscent of uh, February with the SPACs and, and in March, you know. Are you saying there's just up. too much sloshing around there, Alan, and a lot of yeah, it maybe yeah. not so good? Exactly, Carol. You know, I, I know. Last time we talked, uh, Coinbase was came out that day, and and uh, you know it, it went up to three hundred eighty-one dollars and, and higher, and then you know has, has nothing but look back, and and there's just a lot more risk out there. Investors don't understand the risk they're taking, uh, and and that and it pushes institutional investors to take more risk and. And, you know, without a lot of alternatives... But can I push you? Uh, can I push you? Are sure. we nervous that we're going to go into maybe another round of some type of lockdown that will once again put pressure on the economy just as we're starting to turn around here? Oh, that's another negative. It's another headwind. The, the situation, you know, as it develops in China is, is another negative. Yeah, there, there's a, a number of headwinds that, uh, you know, I, I think are going to make it difficult. And just from a valuation standpoint, which is what we go by, as you well know, um, you know, we've been taking more profits and not finding good alternatives. We're finding selective, you know, opportunities that we think are defensive and will hold up well and, and, and have some good long-term performance. But, there, you know, there's not enough of them to uh, uh, use our proceeds from, from the profit taken that, that we've been, uh, uh, you know, doing the last, mm-hmm. last few weeks. And whenever that happens, uh, it, you know, it's not us making a call on the market. It's just a mar- uh, the market more telling us that, uh, you know, it's high and and uh, and vulnerable, and and I think that that's the case. Not only for what you, what you're mentioning with, uh, you know, even a, a slowdown here with, uh, you know, the economy's opening up and 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 what's going on with uh, uh, as as far as the coronavirus, but also from the standpoint of uh, you know inflation and is it transient and and uh, basically what what else is going on. Uh, uh, with um, you know the risk being taken with uh, junk bonds, for example. So. Do you think that inflation is transitory, as Fed Chair Powell continues to say? No, I I really don't. You know, when you start looking at uh, you know uh, wages and you know the employment situation and and uh, you know what what we're what we're seeing with energy, which you know I don't, I don't see you know changing um, anytime soon. Um, you know, I I, I can't uh, imagine. You know, I, I you know you're not going to have the increases. That we've had because some of it supply chain with uh, 
uh, as, as far as uh, with the pandemic. Mm. But, uh, you know, I, I think uh, it's not only higher than what, uh, you know, is, is being reported, but it's also uh, it's, it's, there's a much more well, stickiness to it than, than what people think. Is it because of wage increases? Or I guess I ask is what changed from our pre-pandemic world when it came to commodity supply chains versus where we are today. I mean, I know a lot happened during the pandemic. I'm not being stupid here, (laughs) but I'm trying to understand what fundamentally has changed that as we get back to quote unquote um, normal, why isn't it we just kind of get back to where we were? And and what were the supply constraints back there? Remind us. And if that's what well, that's a good question, up. Carol. And, and, and you know, just I was afraid I was going to get all the social media saying, yep, Master, you are stupid. <laughs> but oh. the, the one, you know, the I one may, sector, still. you know, energy, energy alone, you know, is, 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 it's changed dramatically where, yeah. you know, we had, uh, you know, we're independent and, and uh, really, uh, you know, had, had control over our, our destiny there. And, and mm-hmm. um, you know, if, if that continues to, 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 to uh, progress the way it has uh, in, in the past, you know, eight months, uh, you know, it, it's just going to go higher and higher. And then you, a lot of it is pandemic related and supply chain and, and, and the employment situation with the, the uh, you know, as, as far as uh, uh, handouts and what have you. But, uh, you know, part of it is, is, is something that's not going to change just, you know, pre-pandemic or, or post-pandemic, even if we don't have the, you know, the Delta, uh, you know, as bad as, as, as what, you know, might seem right now. So, Where are you seeing opportunities in the market right now? You said you've been selling a little bit, um, but I'm wondering where you're deploying that cash. Yeah, we've been buying a little bit. We've been selling more, so we're net sellers. But we're still finding some attractive. Uh, Tim, like uh, Ball Corp is is a company, the symbols BLL, that's been around for for ages, and and uh, the stock is down from 105 to uh, you know the low to bid 80s, and and uh, we recommended it a few weeks ago, and and you know I, I think not only do they have uh, a great situation in that they they're they put in some new manufacturing that's very efficient, so the numbers don't look that great now, but it'll help profit margins next year and the year after. But they also have a, a nice aerospace division that's really not being noticed on Wall Street that that's growing gangbusters. So, so I think a company like that can do well, um, you know, even in in, in a in the sluggish or, or downward market. And those are the type of things we're looking at, things that have some defensive capabilities where it's not an all or none, you know, betting on the market and hoping that, you know, uh, there's a greater fool to, to buy the, the stock that you just purchased. Hey, Alan, we caught up with uh, John Rogers over at Ariel Investments earlier this week, deep value guy, uh, and did talk about probably the likelihood of some kind of 10% correction here. Are you anticipating that for the markets, for, for equities particularly? Yeah, we really don't, you know, uh, you know, as, as far as predict, you know, I think it's impossible to, to say. All we can say is that, you know, when we're finding less, you know, bargains and opportunities to buy and, and, and things are hitting our price targets and, and we're taking profits, we automatically start getting more defensive and build up cash. And whenever that's happened in the past, typically we're early, but eventually, yeah, there, there's going to be a pullback. And if there's not a pullback, I, I think it's going to be even a worst case scenario if the market gets mm. done going straight up, you know, as far as into next year, then, then I think we could have much more than just a, a pullback. So, so yeah, I, I would like to see a, a correction, but, you know, it's just impossible to predict the, the magnitude or, or, or the timing. But, uh, you know, we, we let the, the markets tell us by uh, yeah. uh, our valuation parameters. 
All right, going to leave it there. Hey, Alan, have a good week. And Alan Lance, Director of Research at LanceGlobal.com, President of Alan B. Lance and Associates, on the phone from Toledo, Ohio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.